Welcome to Teaching and Learning with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy, a podcast supported by Governor State University's Center for Community Media. I am Dr. Amy Viaclia, Director of Educator Preparation. And I am Dr. Joy Patterson, Chief Diversity Officer. In our podcast, we talk about a range of topics such as historical and cultural identities, community engagement, restorative justice, collaboration, and leadership. We aspire to elevate the profession through conversations with classroom teachers, school support personnel, administrators, parents, and students. Our podcast addresses issues through the lens of diversity, equity, and inclusion, along with takeaways for us to grow as educators. And of course, as learners. So let's get into it. Hello, Dr. Amy. Hello, Dr. Joy. How are you? I'm excited today. You you know what? This is interesting for me, not just necessarily the topic that we're going to talk about today, but advocacy is something that's really interesting to me. And as a young educator, I had no idea about advocacy, how to advocate, who these people were, The older that I get, you know, the more seasoned that I get in the profession, I've come to realize how important advocacy is at all levels, regardless of what they're advocating for. You know, today I know we're going to be talking about education advocacy, but now I'm affiliated with so many advocacy groups and you get to see the type of work and the lift that an advocacy group can do. You know, many of these things we see that come into fruition in laws, we don't really think about how it became, right? And many of the work, much of this work came through advocacy. These are people in many cases, sometimes don't even get paid. They're working with groups and pushing their way through for something that they're passionate about and something that they believe in. So, I mean, there's just advocacy at all different levels. I think something that people might not realize, we get really spirited and we get ourselves out to the voting booths in November for those uh-huh. elections, right? Right. But we forget that the grassroots efforts mm-hmm. are the ones that affect us personally. We might not get a lot of personal attention when we're looking at a national election, but when you're looking at at school boards or other initiatives or organizations, they are the ones who will effect change Uh that have personal value to you and your children. Yeah. And I just want to brag on us for a minute, thinking about advocacy work. We actually wrote the bill ourselves for the governor to change the age of paraprofessionals from age 19 to 18 to help with the whole pipeline to teaching. To see the governor sign a bill that we helped to shape and that will forever change our educator pipeline is amazing. And so anyone can be an advocate and make that will impact change, you know, at any level. I think advocacy work is extremely important, but we're going to talk big advocacy now. (laughs) Exactly. So 
I'm pleased to introduce Robin Steens, who is president of Advance Illinois, an independent policy and advocacy organization working toward a healthy public education system that enables all students to achieve success in college, career, and civic life. She is also board chair of the Steens Family Foundation, where she helps guide education and community development grant making in the North Lawndale and North Chicago communities. Robin began her career as a public school teacher, teaching in Boston, San Francisco, and in the Chicago public schools before going on to earn her law degree. Robin is also a longtime public school parent. Her three children attended and graduated from Chicago Public Schools, where she has also served on several local school councils as a parent representative and community representative. And Joy and I were talking about local representation being so important. So welcome to our podcast. Delighted to be here. Thanks for having me. Hi, Robin. I am such a a fan. And, you know, I had my question for you already, but listening to the bio, I'm just fascinated by what you're doing and your beginnings. Uh, Amy and I, we were talking about grassroots advocacy. And, you know, when I was a teacher, so we were all teachers, you know, I was a middle school teacher. Amy was a middle school teacher. You were a teacher. And I'm sure that there were things that upset us, things that you were passionate about, and you know, what do you do with those things? And I didn't realize until later in life how important advocacy work was, you know, and we actually wrote some legislation that the governor subsequently signed last year, and that was so powerful to us. But I want to hear from you because you have just such an amazing background to talk about yourself. It's not just your career, because you can see it in your bio, you can hear it in your bio. It's not just your career, but it's you also in advocacy, right, in this work. What inspired you to work on behalf of educators in Illinois, and talk about what you hope to accomplish through your advocacy work? Well, I appreciate the question, and The truth is we don't do that particularly well, or we don't do it systematically. There are some schools and districts and places that do, you know, childcare centers and college do an incredible job, but we, it's uneven. And so there are too many children who don't necessarily have access, or maybe they have access, but, you know, things are on a shoestring and they're not able to get sort of the rich opportunities that they need. And that that doesn't play out equally across income. It doesn't play out equally across race. It doesn't play out equally across language or special learning needs. So we have a lot of work to do. So that's what fires me. And having spent a lot of time in classrooms and in schools and a lot of time on the West side of Chicago in particular, you can't come away with that and not understand not only that the need is there and it's great and we need to tackle it at the systemic level, at the policy level, but that Again, the inequities are very real and they are changing what's available to individual children, to their families, to their communities. You know, there's so much more at stake even than just doing right by individual children, though that's that's the beating heart of it. Well, let's talk about your transition into that work and about Advance Illinois. Tell us about the organization and what your role is in that organization. 
So Advance Illinois has been around for 15 years. This is our 15th year, actually. And it is a bipartisan policy and advocacy organization that works on educational issues from early childhood all the way through higher education. And the premise is a couple of, they have a couple of premises. One, this really is systemic work. And so the elevator explanation of who we are and what we do would be so much simpler if it were just, there's just one thing. And if we did this one thing really well, it would all, you know, everything would fall into place. But the truth is, as you know, even if a focus is making sure you've got fabulous teachers in every classroom, it matters the resources that you bring into schools. What's the leadership of that building? What are the standards that we've actually put in place for our, for our educators, our families, our communities? What, what data are we collecting and how are we learning and informing so that we learn from what's working well and we know how to support when things aren't? You got to think about it systemically. So Advance Illinois has always worked both across the educational spectrum, but thought about things in terms of the underlying systems. And the people who came together, I get no credit for the creation of Advance Illinois. There was a one and a half or two year process driven by civic leaders from around the state who were saying, look, we're the sixth largest economy in the country here in Illinois, but we are generally in the bottom when it comes to almost any educational outcome you might want to look at it, whether that's the amount of money that the state is putting into its systems, whether it's the number of children who are graduating from high school or going on to college, our reading proficiency levels, our math proficiency levels, you pick a pick a metric. We were we were trailing and our the equity gaps across lines of income, race, a language, and more were also pretty severe. So the thinking was, can we approach this systemically? Is there, is there room for a nonpartisan? Can we get outside of the political divisions and think about what's good for kids? And so this group of civic leaders created Advance Illinois, and I was hired in as the first executive director. And I have been here. I took a little break, but I've been here for the better part of those 15 years. You know, I've had an opportunity to work with Advance Illinois, and I can say that you all are impartial, and it's really students first, because there's lots of things that I disagree with, because it doesn't necessarily benefit like higher ed versus P-12 or versus community college, because the focus is always on student learning. So I appreciate that. So I want to I switch to this piece that you wrote, and that's what really, really sparked us wanting to have this conversation called My Turn, Never Have Our Students Needed a Strong, Diverse Teaching Force More. So, so let's expand on this particular statement that you make in that piece, which was a dynamic piece, and we'll share it with all our listeners. One of the most important responsibilities that our state and school districts have is ensuring that all students have great teachers to support their learning and development. Say more about that statement. So I'll speak to both of those and I appreciate your lifting them up. They really are at the heart of, I think, I'm sure why you do what you do and why I do what I do, which is the research is very clear about something I think we probably don't even need research to tell us, which is that the single most important factor for student growth and academic progress is the caliber of the teacher at the front of the classroom. There's just a lot of research on that. In fact, if you think about the equity gaps that we have tolerated for far too long, one of the things I think that struck me early in my work is several research pieces that show that if you put a student who was struggling, they were behind grade level, and you put them with a highly effective teacher for three years in a row, they caught up. And I'm pausing to let that sink in to all of us and your listeners. They caught up. 
So we know what it would take us to make sure that all students achieve at the levels we, that they deserve and that allow them to make whatever choices they want in their life. And it comes down to a lot of things, but chief among them is, is there a skilled teacher at the head of their classroom? We know from research it also matters that the teachers represent the diversity of students, that students will do better and feel more connected, particularly students of color, if that teacher, that skilled teacher is a teacher of color. We know that also from research done here in Illinois, though it tracks national research, that left to its own devices, highly skilled teachers are not evenly distributed across schools. The Illinois Education Research Collaborative or Consortium, excuse me, the IERC, it's no longer in existence, but they did this study twice over. And they looked to see if you bundled five or six indicators of highly effective teachers and, and got an understanding of teachers that were really skilled, how did they spread out across schools? And it turns out they're not evenly distributed, that the more affluent a school was or the more white a school was, the more likely they were to have a high concentration of those highly skilled teachers. And conversely, our students that are schools that were in low-income communities and serving largely students of color, English learners, less so. And if you, again, think about where should we be deploying? Where do we want to make sure that we've got people who are well-prepared, well-trained, and are getting those supports and those resources that they need to be successful? We're getting it exactly wrong. And so we've got real work to do. I want to repeat what you said. Equity gaps we have tolerated. The word tolerate, it, first of all, it makes me bristle in so many ways because it's tolerate means to put up with, to it, you're not, it's not acceptance. It's not any, it's a negative word, but we have tolerated these equity gaps. Now, we, you talked about where the most experienced, the most uh, effective teachers are, but we're also dealing with teacher shortages. But there's another piece to this. I've read in recent uh, news reports that, oh, well, there's not really a teacher shortage everywhere. But when we're looking in Illinois, we have very specific needs and there aren't teacher shortages everywhere, not in every grade level and every content area, but it also depends on where you're looking. So what schools, can you speak to that a little bit? What schools are most affected by teacher shortages? How can we just squash this argument and say how important it is? And I'm going to preface it, I'll, I'll begin and I'll end by adding a softer or a broad, broadening that. What I'm going to, the data that I'm going to give you that tells us where do we have the most acute shortages and what do those look like? What are the regions and what are the types of positions, et cetera? I want to be careful to add that those are driven by where we've got unfilled positions. So we need a teacher, it's declared, someone they're out there actively looking and they haven't found somebody. But what that won't fully capture is the places where there may be a teacher in the classroom, but it may be a short-term provisional licensed teacher. Right. It may be not a highly qualified. That might not have been the district's first choice, but they didn't have enough applicants. They may allow a teacher to continue in a position because they don't have confidence they can replace it, but they think there are some issues. So it has a ripple effect beyond what I'm about to say. 
And, and, and by the way, I'm going to give you some tough news. And I'm happy to also share there's some good news on the horizon on the shortage as well, if, if you want that. But I'll start with the tough news. So what do we know about how that shortages play out here in Illinois? First of all, people are right that the shortages are particularly acute for special education teachers and for bilingual teachers, where the vacancy rate is about twice what it is for the state as a whole. So we have a particular challenge in bringing teachers in in those two areas. The, in terms of regionally, you see the most significant shortages in our urban districts, followed not too far behind by our rural districts. Our suburban districts are doing better. You also see differences in districts that serve more low-income students. You see more steeper shortages, higher vacancy rates in districts with more students from low-income families. You also see higher vacancy rates in districts that are serving more students of color. So again, it's not affecting everybody equally. Who it's affecting, again, plays into those very inequities that I believe that as a state, we really should be prioritizing. So you should care about making sure there are great teachers generally. We are not doing an equally good job by our students of color, by our students from low-income families, by our urban areas, by our rural areas, and specifically our bilingual students and our special education students. They're bearing the brunt of this disproportionately. Robin, this is like reading a book where you like, it's really getting good and I can't wait to get to the, <laughs> the really good parts because you're really speaking our language and you're speaking truth. And sometimes it's hard to speak this truth and you have to be politically correct. And you, you know, you have to put on all these faces when you're having these conversations. So I, I do have some tough whys for you because sometimes for me, this is not rocket science. And to me, it feels like this is by design. So when you describe those schools that are underrepresented as students, you know, you have students of color. Those are the schools that you describe. I know you described it by regions, but really we're describing predominantly minority-based schools, high-need schools. And so then I have all these whys. Like, why is that the case? Why is education still unequal? Why is that? Why is the U.S.? Let's just talk about Illinois. Why are the schools resourced unequally? Why is there a shortage in classroom when you have teachers of color, uh, schools of, you know, students of color? Why is there a shortage of highly qualified teachers? Because I'm glad you said that. Just because there's a teacher in front of you, that doesn't mean that that was the most qualified. And we know where all of those highly qualified, many, I shouldn't say all, many, because we have great, great teachers that are serving these kids in high need districts, but they're, they're not resourced the same. And it's like this big question, why, how does that happen in the state of Illinois? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna start by just saying one side thing that we can talk about more, which is what I am the most distressed by is when the fact that we need more teachers and the fact they need to be skilled are pitted against each other. We can do one or we can do the other, but we can't do both. So let's just, you know, let's lower our standards or throw them out the window altogether. You know, we'll take anybody. You, you sure you, you should be in this conversation with Amy and I like every day. It worries day. me so much and anything you guys can do because I don't think, I think that's a false 
dichotomy. I think you can absolutely do both. And in fact, there's really interesting research and every bit of lived experience I've ever had, whether it be in the law or in education is the same, which is people want to join a winning organization. Like if you say, look, anybody can do this, that's not a very attractive proposition. And I would also posit as a former teacher and you guys as middle school teachers, I was high school. I think that's easy compared to middle school. And they may both be easy compared to preschool. It's a very hard job, and it is not something everybody can do well. It simply isn't. When you think of both the academic and instructional capacity you have to have, combined with the emotional intelligence to connect with students all in one package and the ability to be creative and to manage the classroom, that is far from an easy job. And I, I, I just recoil against people who suggest that it is. But I put that to the side, and I'm going to answer your question. Why is it so unequal? Um, but we can come back to that if you would like to. There are actually structural reasons, and these are the things that Advanced Illinois likes to look at. And we've, we've made some, uh, some really serious headway on some and not on others. So I'm going to start with a basic premise. We have 852 districts here in Illinois. That is a ridiculous number of districts. Now, it is extraordinarily politically unpopular to think about consolidating districts into bigger districts, unit districts. But what happens when you have so many and smaller districts is those lines can can lock in disparities of wealth, property wealth, personal and earned wealth. They can lock in segregation by race and by other factors. And so, um, and you see that. I mean, there are, I was one district, I won't name it, but it's divided into three. It's one community, but it's divided into three districts. And the most notable difference between the districts is just the amount of wealth they have to put into it. And so the district that has the most per pupil wealth is the least willing to consolidate with the two districts that don't, who are constantly like, let's consolidate, let's consolidate. So you've already locked in those differences, which leads to pro systemic problem number two, which is that Illinois has historically been one of the states that is the most dependent on local property wealth to pay for its schools. So going into, I hope most of your listeners know that we have we are the most dependent on local property wealth. So back in uh, a decade ago, about two thirds of what we were spending to support our schools was coming from local property taxes. And the state share had dropped to about 23%. The feds were making up about nine or 10%. The national average has been about 50-50. So about 50% the state share, about 50% local property taxes. So when you are a state that depends that much on local property taxes, of course, districts with a lot of local property wealth can spend much more even when they tax themselves at a lower rate. So you've got some districts that are taxing themselves at half of the state average and who can spend three times the state norm. And you've got other districts that are taxing themselves at 130% of the state average, but can that generates almost no revenue because there's just not a property uh, rich district. So one of the things that Advance Illinois worked on and led a coalition on and did a lot of work on with other partners is to, to radically change the state school funding formula so that we are now, there are more state dollars. The goal is to increase the amount that the state is putting in and to direct those new dollars to the districts that are furthest from funding adequacy. Those tend to be districts. Those are vastly disproportionately districts with lower property wealth, they tend to be districts with students from low-income families. They are disproportionately students, uh, districts that serve students of color and English learners. And so we are and have been since 2017, we, put, that we have been putting 1.6 billion new dollars into our K-12 schools. And those dollars have been driven and directed 
to the schools that we should be driving and directing those dollars to. And we'd really not been doing that. So if you ask, how are we going to get to the point where everybody can compete for teachers? First of all, I would argue all teachers coming out of preparation programs need to be ready to go. They need to be ready, prepared. We need to give them every possible tool so that they will be successful no matter where they end up. And then two, we need to level the playing field at the district level to make sure that we are funding those districts at a level where they can, you know, they've got a good salary structure. They've got a lower student class ratio. They have counselors and arts programs and things that create an environment where both where principals want to be, where teachers want to be, and where families and students want to be and are able to thrive. Sorry, that was such a long answer, but that's really getting down to the core of why is it so inequitable and what's it going to take to change it? I'm glad you talked about the structure, the funding that is in place in Illinois, because come voting time, and I've already seen it in some local districts and where I live and close to Governor State University referendum on the property tax, what the citizens, what the community members want and are willing to do to pay for taxes on their property. And looking at this structure, I mean, it's like, of course, that's why there are inequities is because of the funding formula. But if we can change that and make things more equitable, and that was the next question I had was about that competition that happens between schools. And whenever you have a very tiny district that is a wealthy, tiny district, that's a very positive look for a teacher who, especially a young teacher coming out of college. Wow, this is a low student teacher ratio. They can pay. Why would I go to this neighboring district that has a high turnover rate or a very large ratio in the classroom? Talk to us a little bit about those initiatives, those more about the movements that you are seeing as encouraging. So first of all, I think that the move to continue to increase the funding that is going out to K-12 schools through the evidence-based formula, EBF, is critical because what's appealing to teachers, salaries matter, class size matter. So too does, is there a library? Are there, is there arts programming? Is there a good PE program? Do my kids get recess? Are there support personnel? So I've got support when I've got a student who's struggling. It's not just on me to also be the counselor and the social worker and the school psychologist, but I've got So I think the more that we are getting dollars out to districts so that they can build the programs they know they need, and that's in fact what schools are doing. You're watching those dollars do exactly that. So we got to keep increasing the dollars that are going so that we can get these structural things in place so that teachers are both attracted to those districts and can really be effective in those districts. So 550 million free be up this year should be the call. On the other side, What we don't want is people just fighting over a small pool of teachers. What we want is to grow the number of teachers and to diversify the number of teachers who are coming through the program. Here's where I've got some good news. We have actually, the number of candidates who are enrolling in preparation programs has been on the steady uptick for the last three to five years. We added another close to 2,000 just this last year alone. 
Uh, the diversity of the candidate pool of who's going into educator preparation programs has doubled in the last 10 years. That's great news. I'm waiting on the most recent year's data to see if we continued that trend. So those are positive things. And I think um, there are a number of things that we're doing intelligently as a state that I hope we will continue. You know, one, there is another body of research, and I'm sorry if I'm being too wonky, but you know, I do love the data. I do love the research, just like you guys. There's this wonderful body of research that shows that young people who indicate an interest in teaching, the earlier they express that interest, the more likely they are to end up in a classroom and stay there. And so in a world where we both need to get people into classrooms, but also keep them, more on that in a minute, wouldn't it be great if we tapped into that? And so the state has done a couple of things. One, it has invested pretty significantly in building these career and technical pathways into education. And we've now got a growing number of schools and districts across the state where you can graduate with your high school diploma and it'll have a little certificate that says, I've got a CTE pathway, I completed a pathway into education. And so that's number one. So we're tapping into that early, we're supporting those students, we're getting them early experiences, giving them some credits. But then the second thing that we're doing that I think is really smart as a state, oh, and then also the state has now bought the Educator Rising curriculum. We used to have these Future Teacher of America clubs in lots of schools, and they kind of went by the wayside. Educator Rising is kind of the new version of that. And the state, to its credit, just bought the curriculum for all districts. So any district that wants to establish those programs, the state has made is going to make that is making that available free of charge. Another way, again, of getting kids interested in and knowledgeable about. So that's piece number one. Piece number two is, okay, so I'm, I wanna go into teaching. How do, how, does that, how do we make that more affordable and make that more something more attractive? We're doing a couple of things as a state that we've really been investing more heavily in over the last few years. One, we've got the Minority Teachers of Illinois program, which is specifically for candidates of color. There is a set aside for black men teachers, which has been a particular shortfall in the state and for bilingual teachers, which is, as you've heard, a critical need. And we've done a couple of things over the last few years, and I know you guys were intimately involved in this, so thank you. One, we have grown the number of scholarships that are available. Two, we have increased the annual award that's available. It hadn't been increased in, I think, a couple decades. And three, if you are one of those kids with the high school diploma that says, I have my, my pathway into education, you're eligible starting as a freshman, not when you start the teacher prep program, which is usually your junior year, which means you would get two years of scholarship support. You can get four years of scholarship support because you've already indicated you're interested. So you're a good bet. So there, that is one strand, but just one. There, then we have a special education tuition waiver. If you're gonna be going into special education, we will waive your tuition at a public university here in Illinois. Just waive it. And that has been a growing program and a terrific way of getting people into that area. Arguably, the state needs to come in and remunerate, you know, sort of reimburse some of those colleges because I think they may be tapping out. The MAP program generally is helpful. One of the things that we find is that the interest of all students into teaching is about the same, but we aren't getting as many students of color into post-secondary. And one of the big barriers there is affordability. So by expanding the MAP program so profoundly last year, and the governor's put another proposed $100 million, if the General Assembly agrees, we're going to be able to make MAP available to every student that's interested, cover the full cost of community college, or darn near, and a much more significant part of four-year college. So that's another way of making 
post-secondary generally affordable, which will increase the number of people who will then choose to go into teaching if passed as prologue. And I know I'm continuing to do that on, but that's because there's good stuff that we're doing. The, the next step for the state is to make stronger articulation agreements between community colleges and four years so that people who want to go into education but want a, a more affordable first two years don't have to repeat courses. And so there is a bill right now in Springfield, all credit to the Illinois Community Colleges Board for filing it, that would strengthen and make those articulation agreements required and consistent. That could be another enormously important step in the right direction. And then lastly, another category of work is that the state has been investing in certain pathway programs like Grow Your Own or the Golden Apple Scholars Program, where again, they start with students in high school and then support them all the way through. It tends to be a very diverse set of, of students. Their track record for getting kids into classrooms and keeping them is quite high. And they've also, they've got a more expedited program to try to respond to the shortage right now. Teach for America would be another example of that. And there, what's nice about all three of those programs is there's a lot of handholding and individual support that comes with that for their students. And then the lastly, if you'll bear with me one more time, is once we know we've got a problem with keeping teachers, our retention rate is not equally good. Um, we lose Black teachers at the highest rate, yeah. and we lose special education and bilingual teachers at a higher rate. So the very teachers we want to get in and keep we're having the hardest time both getting in and keeping. And so one of the things that the state used to do is they used to do more mentoring and induction for new teachers. When, when we sort of had economic troubles, that was one of the first programs to go. It's now back in place. And more importantly, the program, as I understand it, is working to do affinity, affinity mentoring. So one of the challenges that you might have as a, as a teacher of color that we've heard teachers report is they may be the only one or two teachers of color in their district or in their area. And so, and they get tapped to do a lot of things because there aren't enough teachers of color to respond to very particular issues. And so they need extra like places to go for that moral support and for that collegial work. And so it's not just mentoring and induction, which we're back to doing as a state, it's mentoring and induction, including in affinity, in affinity groups, right. yeah. including men. So it's too soon to know, I think, how well that's going to play. I will say I'm, I'm all about the good news when we've got it. Our retention numbers have been going up in the last few years, interestingly. I know everyone's been worried about the big resignation. We haven't seen it yet in Illinois. Maybe this will be the year where the data shows up, but we haven't. That hasn't actually played out yet in Illinois. So knock on wood that I didn't just jinx that. And that we've got another strong year behind us. But those are some of the things, Amy, and I'm sorry I went on so long. No, but it's a no, lot. this is this is good because it's great know, that there our, are so many things. Schools. Yeah, this is yeah. great news for our partner schools because you mentioned some things that, you know, when you're in the day-to-day -day as that administrator and you're talking about some of the schools that have these great needs, these are things that they don't necessarily think about or have access to. And so we try to create those partnerships. You know, we're happy that we're working with over 30 partners, LEAs in the, in the South Cook area. These are all Title I schools. So those very schools that we're talking about that really need teachers, and not only do they need teachers, diverse teachers. So we developed this consortium with them and more are joining. And we have an MOU with them by which the individual, and so not with the school, but by the individual teacher, paraprofessional. So we looked at paraprofessionals. Amy and I did a survey, about 200 of them responded. And what we learned about them is that they love being in the classroom. They love being an educator. 
They live within a five mile radius of where they work. They know the parents and the students. And so there's this commitment there already. And many of them are people of color, right? So, uh, and they want, the only question that they really responded negatively about was their salary. So, <laughs> so you want to be a teacher? You want to earn more money? It's like, yes. And what I and- really like about the paraprofessional pathway is some of the agreements that these consortium members have made or even within districts, especially maybe a unit district that is a K-12, they are making it possible for paraprofessionals to complete their field experiences in a different grade level than where their typical placement is. They might trade with another paraprofessional, but they are really being flexible and accommodating and so supportive of the paraprofessionals to get their teaching license. Yes, absolutely. So they're able to do job embedded field experience and student teaching without quitting their job. And I think this is such a much better pathway because sometimes when we apply for grants, you're applying to help this district and that one district benefits as opposed to this is a way that that MOU can follow the individual paraprofessional, the individual school district, so that there's a wealth, that wealth is spread. And so it's been really successful. And we have a program, all our programs, special education, early childhood, elementary, all of our secondary programs have a a schedule that's amenable to their work schedule. So we've added extra cohorts to accommodate working adults. And we had to make some changes here within our admissions policies. You know, we have a strong partnership with community colleges because we didn't always uh, offer education to freshmen and sophomores. So we have a strong partnership with them so that they're not repeating courses. You know, we accept all of their courses. And so we really made some of those things much easier for them to uh, get started. I think some of the areas, and this is where I have a question for you, because we see a strong interest. Number one, we see the strong interest with the school district, and those partnerships are wonderful. We see strong interest with their paraprofessionals, and they get started. They're not necessarily finishing at the rate of which we'd like for them to finish. So retention is still an issue, right? So retention is an issue when they become teachers, right? We know that especially our teachers of color, and even more specifically, our African-American teachers are not staying in the field long. And so we see that while they're also in the program, that there's challenges with retention. And so we try to build in mentors and things like that. But we're talking about a different group. These are working adults, right? So they're working full-time already. They have families. Because of their salaries, many of them are working a second job. And now we're throwing, go back to school, you know, get your degree or your master's degree and get your professional educator license. So my question is, what are some of the things that we can do as higher ed? And what are some of the things that the districts can do to build that strong workforce to support them and to retain them? You know, what are some things that we can tap into to strengthen what we're doing. 
I mean, you've named so many of them already, which is, and I think it's also starting with the flexibility and the sort of a learning mentality. There's no question that if we can tap into our paraprofessional pool and support them to become teachers, that's powerful. They've already expressed interest. They're there. Where we've done that successfully, those teachers stay and they tend to stay in their area. So it's a really smart strategy for areas that want to sort of grow their own. Grow your own isn't just a program. It's sort of an an approach that says, how do I get people from my area to come into this profession and stay here? Because if they do, they are much more likely to continue on. And so paraprofessionals are a wonderful, rich, ripe source. One of the things that I had not realized until about a year ago is that about half of our paraprofessionals right now in Illinois schools already have bachelor's degrees. And so the move from there to getting your license is that much potentially faster. So I think you're seeing both universities outside, you know, alternative programs and districts all getting that, okay, what what can we each do a little bit differently to support paraprofessionals who need to continue to earn their salary, who, you know, to stay in the classroom as they are completing their coursework, getting the experiences they need to have. And so I'm not sure I have anything to add to what you already said. You're approaching it with, if, if those are our parameters, we, we ought to be able to do this. If everybody who's involved in that process is willing and able, and, and you're starting to see that flourish. And I think, I'm not even sure there's so much of a state policy play there is. Because, no. Because I think, I think it's really just about local partnerships between districts and programs yes. to those local needs. Yes, yes. And and we thought that it would be a problem with bargaining, but schools, they found a way to make this happen. And so they're making it work. And we found what you just said, that many of them, I mean, Amy, like 20, 25% of them already have degrees and some of them have master's degrees. One of the things that we did find that I would love to see expanded, especially in early childhood, some of these initiatives, statewide initiatives to help fund their education doesn't apply to people who already have a bachelor's degree. And we're finding that they are having the most challenges going back to school because of financing their education because they don't want to take out uh, yet another loan to go back to school. Yeah, and those are the conversations. That's the places where we we need to get that information and figure out if there are some changes we we should be making at the state level to facilitate that. Because I think this this notion, this pathway of getting paraprofessionals into classrooms as teachers is a powerful one. Um, It's a ready-made, and I I will also name that, I'm sure you're hearing this as well, we also have a shortage at the paraprofessional level, and arguably it's a more acute one even than for our teachers. Um, So we we may be getting more paraprofessionals into teachers, and then that may uh, actually exacerbate our paraprofessional. Yes, so that's the second part. I do want to mention that, that pipeline, and, and so we're doing this really good with one school district. We need to expand it, and I don't necessarily want to bring the school district up. So, but anyway, there's three paths to becoming a paraprofessional, right? One is a high ACT score, which I don't know what that number is, something off the charts, but, or having 60 credit hours or passing the parapro test. And so one of our faculty members here, Dr. Conrad, he actually developed a module for parapreparation. Our School of Extended Learning, they also have a program too, by which paraprofessionals or individuals before they're paraprofessionals, high schoolers can take the test 
to qualify to become a paraprofessional. So that is why we wrote the legislation to change the paraprofessional age from 19 to 18. So when they're in these grow your own type of programs as high schoolers, they can go right in from high school to being a paraprofessional and having an MOU with a school like Governor State University where they can work and work on their and go to school at the same time. So they're earning money right away as an educator while they're working on their professional educator license because we are very well aware of the shortage of paraprofessionals and well, we have to replace them. And you'd like to think that if we, if it became better known that we are going to invest in you as a paraprofessional, you'd actually get more people to come in and say, okay, that's the legitimate way I want to start. I'm not going to get um, you know, if, if, if I want to do a paraprofessional for a while and I want to then grow from there, that, that is my state is ready to, and my district and my local preparation programs, they see me, they see that they're prepared to do that. And I don't know that that's been the case before. So it could be that even while you were getting paraprofessionals to move, you know, in new directions, it actually will be enticing and will make more people want to become paraprofessionals. And it will view that as a first step. And, and not a last step, which would be great. And I want to make one point, but I know we're going we're gonna to bump up against time. And, um, but when, when we talk about attrition earlier, how do you make sure that we're keeping teachers, preparing teachers well is a way of keeping teachers. That if you, if you ask teachers why they leave and the Illinois Workforce Education Research Collaborative, which is a long way of saying I work, which is kind of a new statewide educational research. They interviewed 3,500 teachers in Illinois in the last year. Who stayed, who left, who moved? And the most common, one, the leadership in a building mattered enormously. Salary mattered, particularly for movers, that people might look for that. But the other is teachers want to be successful. And the better prepared they are, the more likely they are to be successful in the classroom. And if they're successful in the classroom, they're more likely to stay. And so this, this talk about preparation isn't just a mechanical, we've got to just check that box and hurry people through. It matters how we do it. It matters how we do it. And we are more likely to, to get people into classrooms and keep them there if we do that job really thoughtfully and well. And I just want to reiterate what you said earlier. And I think our, a couple of our local districts are really tapping into this is if a student, a high school student, maybe even middle grade student has identified, I would like to be a teacher. They will go into that profession if that interest is nurtured. Right. And so I think a couple of our local school districts are really doing a great job of, of tapping into that, having a future teachers club, a foundational education course, have them work in a partner school, like elementary school and doing some shadowing. So some great things are happening, but yes, nurturing that interest, but we do seek to be proud of the profession that we are in and lowering standards doesn't make us any more proud of the profession. It makes us a little disengaged and disenchanted. So keeping those standards high and really seeking to prepare candidates for that challenging job of teaching those young minds and spirits. They're so spirited. And yes, I agree with you. Preschool is not my thing. 
<laughs> I think that that working with squirmy little ones all day long, we have to have the right stomach for that. The right people, they just love that. They thrive. They see I the humor. Know, they see the joy. I and I belong in high school. I and really I belong in middle school. school. They're just like from another planet, right? <laughs> well, I think middle school is the hardest, personally. They're from so, another planet. And again, you have to have the disposition for it because I can't imagine being with like five-year-olds, four-year-olds, five-year-olds at all. You know, next time we'll have to have the hard conversation about, because Amy talked about how do we make this more affordable? And you, and you guys are working really hard on how do we make this more affordable? And we're trying to put out the word of all these different initiatives like MTI that I strongly support, but how do we get teachers to earn more? And that is the hard question. And I think that we could retain a lot more teachers and we would definitely attract more people to the education profession if we earned more. Joy, there's no question that shows up repeatedly as well. The single best answer to that is the evidence-based formula. We need to get enough money out to districts. Right now, over half of our districts have less than 75% of what they need. If you have less than 75% of what you need, to, that's thousands of dollars per pupil. That's yeah. what that represents. If we were able to get to full funding, one of the things that would inevitably necessarily happen is that not only would you be able to round out the staff in your school generally to bring back those programs that are not really extras, but that are really necessary, but also you'd be able to increase your pay scale. Yeah. But we can't pay teachers with what we don't have. And too many districts simply do not have. Now we've huge progress right? We used to have 160 yeah. districts yeah. below 60% of adequacy. We're down to just two that are below yeah. 60%, but we got to keep moving that needle. And so the, if you care about that issue, you got to care about getting money through the evidence-based formula so that districts can afford to pay more. The single yeah. most sustainable way to impact that issue. Absolutely. And I was encouraged by what the governor said on what was it two weeks ago, but yes, we have to put more money in that bucket. And then my daughter, who's been teaching now for 12, 13 years, you know, doesn't have to have a part-time job while she's also trying to raise three, you know, while they're trying to raise three children. 100% could not agree with you more. And it's great. You mentioned, I mean, the governor has prioritized and said, we'd love to put $70 million a year into some of the districts that are the, that have the most significant teacher vacancy issues. And I think that's good and helpful. I think that if we do that without continuing to invest in the supply of more teachers, then you're just, you're, it's a feeding frenzy, right? Between the districts, uh -huh. which is not what we want. We want to continue to grow that pipeline. And the other thing I worry about a little bit um, that I know they're thinking about is that when you put money into the evidence-based formula, it, it, it's locked in. It becomes part of what's called the base funding minimum and districts will have that money in perpetuity which means they can put it into salaries. Grant dollars, no matter how generous, will go away. And so I have to be careful about what I put into salaries because right. salary is a permanent decision, not a short-term decision. So I think it's, I think I, I give the governor a lot of credit for prioritizing this issue, for finding, identifying funds that can be used to address the teacher shortage. I think the question we all should be thinking about is, is that the right way? Are there, are there, how do we, how do we, 
Yeah, it's a small sure that way, we do that right? most effective way. And that may be, but we're, we're, we're looking at that and those are some of the questions we're thinking about. Right, and there's multiple ways, right? Especially for the teachers who are already in the classroom, that's the salary that they accepted going into the door. They This is a profession that they love and now it's just a matter of keeping them. And so there's a variety of ways to do that. So we'll keep working at that. We'll keep working with you. We're happy that you do the job that you do. Ditto, ditto, right back at you. The teacher pipeline, both getting wonderful people into the profession, diversifying that pipeline, and then preparing people really thoughtfully and well, and then keeping them. That is a complex job that should be thought about as a whole, as a pipeline. And that work lives across multiple agencies here in Illinois and in most states, actually. And so I really value that there is a, a group that comes together regularly. You guys are part of that. We're part of that. It's 50 or 60. Everybody who touches this work comes together and talks about this as a whole. And we've been doing that for years. And I think one of the reasons we have as many thoughtful programs and are making so many smart investments is that we're thinking that there is a, a lot of people coming together to think about this as a whole. As, and that's what we really, I think that's been invaluable and is paying a lot of dividends. It's been fantastic having this conversation. It's like, I just want to, I know, like oh, replay oh, pieces of it. It's thank been wonderful. So well, thank you guys for having me. And thank you for having this conversation, both with me, but more generally out in the world. We, we need so much more discussion and focus and activity. And, and we got a lot of work to do because a lot of those investments we're doing that are really good and smart, about half of them are funded with federal funds that are going to go away in a year. So we're going to have some real work to do as, and hustle as a state to make sure we don't let them, them fall by the wayside. So keep well, at it. We're glad that you're yes. at the helm. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to Teaching and Learning with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy. Visit our website at www.govst.edu slash teaching and learning podcast to see the show notes from today's episode. We appreciate Governor State University's Center for Community Media for hosting our podcast and the work behind the scenes to make publishing possible. Stay tuned for more episodes of Teaching and Learning with Dr. Amy and Dr. Joy.